the uh, bohemian priest and preacher John Huss, some of you might know, was sent to the stake in 1415 as a result of his condemnation for heresy uh, by the Roman Catholic Council of Constant. John Huss had given prominent and popular voice in the city of Prague to some of the reforming ideas of the Englishman, John Wycliffe. Wycliffe had died some 30 years or so before Huss, and Roman Catholic authorities were no fans of what Huss was doing, so Huss was summoned to the Council of Constance and was condemned and subsequently executed. But nevertheless, the movement which Huss had begun did not fizzle out in his homeland. The theological heirs of John Huss were a group known as the Bohemian Brethren, and they were eventually able to force Roman Catholic authorities to the negotiating table so as to secure some reforms in the lives of their churches there in Bohemia, or what we would know as the Czech Republic today, in the 1400s. And in the next century, in the early decades of the Reformation, the Bohemian Brethren aligned themselves with the Protestant Reformation, first uh, leaning kind of in a more Lutheran direction and later on becoming more Reformed. The church historian Philip Schaff said that the Bohemian Brethren surpassed all churches in their confessions of faith, which amounted to no less than 34 in the period from 1467 to 1671. Now, for our purposes this morning, I wanted to highlight the language of the Bohemian Confession of 1573, which contained a very helpful section dealing with the fall and the punishment of man. And this is what they said. They said, on account of sin, the Lord God deservedly permits and brings in all kinds of afflictions, miseries, and vexations of mind in this life upon all men, such as heat, cold, hunger, thirst, cares, trials, hard labors, calamity, adversity, times of sorrow, sword, fire, diseases, griefs, and at the last, also that intolerable and bitter death by which nature is destroyed. And yet at the same time, this arrangement also exists so that it may be taught all these punishments are necessary and must be borne patiently by men, that they owe them unto God and have deserved an even severer punishment. These are brought upon us and are borne patiently that we may learn to acknowledge the magnitude of our sin and how grievous a thing it is, and also our own weakness and poverty and misery, and that we perceive by experience how wicked, foul, and bitter a thing it is, above all comprehension, that one forsake the Lord his God. Likewise, that those who are drowned in these miseries and have been oppressed with these burdens may be stirred up to repentance and to seek grace and help from God who is a father full of mercy and compassion. And what the Bohemian brethren confessed in that confession is actually what we find this morning in the latter portion of Genesis chapter 3, that indeed it is a wicked, foul, and bitter thing to forsake the Lord, and that because of sin, the Lord does bring to mankind all manner of affliction, miseries, and even gives us over to our sin. But we also find that God is a Father that is full of mercy and compassion. So let's look to the text. Genesis chapter 3 will be uh, this morning in verse 16. 
and down through the end of the chapter. So the setting, obviously, is the Lord coming, having come to the man and the woman in the garden, having just delivered the curse to the serpent. Now he speaks to the woman, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Over the past couple of weeks, as we've been in Genesis 3, we've seen the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. We've seen the fruits and effects of that fall into sin. They brought spiritual death to themselves. They became subject to physical death and brought upon themselves the possibility of eternal death. We saw last week the blame shifting and their failure to take responsibility for their sin. We saw the curse that came upon Satan and also the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But the Lord was not finished speaking in verse 15. Rather, he proceeded to speak first to the woman and then to the man, telling them of how their lives will now be made difficult as a punishment because of their sin. And so as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under three main points. First, the punishment of the woman. Secondly, the punishment of the man. And thirdly, faith in the promise. Punishment of the woman, punishment of the man. And thirdly, faith in the promise. First of all, in verse 16, we see the punishment of the woman. For her, it was pronounced by God that her pains in childbirth would be multiplied, that in pain she would bring forth children. And please understand that in what I'm about to say, I speak as a man, and therefore in relative ignorance of these things. I speak not from experience. From what I've been told, however, the pain of childbirth can be excruciating and frightening. I was told about a woman who, prior to giving birth, said to her husband, I don't think I can go through with this. To which, if memory serves correctly, her husband replied, you will. 
The lead up to birth can be frightening and the birth itself can be terribly painful. Prior to the advent of modern medicine, childbirth was not only painful but also exceedingly dangerous. Who knows how many countless women have perished in giving birth to children. I understand that different women experience these things differently now with the advent of epidural and spinal block and some babies are born by C-section and so on. Not every woman's experience is the same. This verse says nothing about a uniform experience for every woman. But it does say now that the normal order of things that the Lord had established is going to be much more painful and much more difficult. Greek philosopher Aristotle observed that women bring forth children with more pain than any other creature. Childbirth in a world untainted by sin would have been very, very different than this. And likewise, the marriage relationship becomes strained as well. And so we find at the end of verse 16 that the Lord says, Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, what does this mean? Well, first, let's make a few observations. First, the statement here is part of the punishment. It runs parallel to the difficulty of childbirth. Childbirth becomes painful in a sinful world, so also now the marriage relationship becomes difficult in a sinful world. How so? Well, specifically, the Lord said, your desire will be for your husband. What does that mean? I think the best key to understanding those words is to look ahead to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where the Lord speaks to Cain. And in speaking to Cain there in Genesis 4, 7, he says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And I think the, the picture here is that sin is crouching. Sin has set its desire on Cain. That is to say, it set its desire to master Cain, to exercise authority. It's sitting there, ready to pounce, ready to overpower and command Cain. And therefore, the Lord says to Cain, you must master it. Sin has its desire set on usurping Cain, taking him over, seeking to rule him. And the Lord says to Cain, you must not be mastered by sin, but you must rather master it. He was to exercise authority so as to keep himself from being mastered by the sin that was crouching at his door. He was to exercise discipline and self-control depending on the grace of God and the promise that was given concerning the seed of the woman so that he would not be controlled by sin. Lord willing, we'll consider that episode with Cain more in the future. But for our purposes here, seeing what's going on there in Genesis 4-7 in connection with that phrase, its desire is for you, I think is helpful for us to understand what's going on here in Genesis 3.16 with this phrase, your desire will be for your husband. And I think the idea is that now, due to sin, instead of dwelling in harmony with a man leading and loving in a gentle and gracious way, and the woman submitting to that loving, gentle, and gracious leading of her husband, now there is a power struggle that is introduced into marriage. The woman's desire is for her husband. That is to say that she now desires to dominate instead of being subject to the loving leadership of her husband. 
But that is not all. The difficulty of marriage relationships in a fallen world is not just that of women wanting to dominate their husband. There's also fault and sin on the side of the husband as well, as the end of verse 16 indicates. He will rule over you. And I think that is to say that the leadership of the husband, which was to have been benevolent and good and gentle and loving, now becomes harsh and domineering. Now, it would be too much to say that the words of the latter part of verse 16 explicitly touch on all problems that can arise in marriage. All kinds of other sins get involved in disturbing marriages. But what we must notice here is that this punishment is given specifically to the woman. Now the marriage relationship becomes hard. But even though it is specifically given to the woman as a punishment, it doesn't stop there. The punishment of the woman becomes, in a way, also the punishment of the man. She is now seeking to usurp him. And being sinful himself, he now rules over her and subjugates her, which functions as a punishment. And this punishment functions both upon him and upon her. There are uh, certainly exceptions to the rule. Not everyone has the same exact experience. But sometimes, instead of being domineering, husbands can become disengaged and refuse to take charge and even to uh, refuse to exert legitimate authority. And though this may manifest itself in different ways, the point here is that The harmony of the marriage relationship and the order which God had established now becomes broken as a result of sin, and this this disharmony then becomes its own punishment. Is it any wonder then that the commands that are given to husbands and to wives in the New Testament are commands that serve to mitigate the sinful tendencies that are described here in Genesis 3? The tendency of the wife that's given as a punishment is to set her desire for her husband to seek to usurp him. So wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. The general sinful tendency of husbands, as described here, is that he will rule over you. That is, a sinful tendency to dominate and to be harsh. And yet husbands are commanded in the New Testament to love their wives, to not be embittered against them, Colossians 3.19. They are commanded to live in an understanding way with their wives, 1 Peter 3, 7. And so let's just take a moment to think about this. For those who are married, husbands and wives, are these things manifesting themselves in your marriage? Wives, if your husbands are being domineering, that is truly domineering in an ungodly way, please understand that this is not the way that the Lord ordained marriage to be. This is a result of the fall. Husbands, if your wives are usurping your leadership position in the home and being disrespectful, and I mean truly disrespectful, not just disrespectful in your imagination, please understand this is not the way that marriage was ordained to be. Rather, in both husbands and wives, these attitudes and behaviors are sinful aberrations that are brought on by the fall. The punishment for sin, as we find in Scripture, is often more sin. The punishment for sin is often God giving someone over to their sin so that it continues to propagate 
and spiral out of control. Just think of that, that pattern of degradation that we find in Romans chapter 1. Romans one twenty four. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. They were already being ungodly. God gave them over to more ungodliness. Romans one twenty six. God gave them over to degrading passions. Romans one twenty eight. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. The punishment of sin is often more sin. God giving someone what they want. In other words, they want to sin, God turns them loose and gives them over to their sin. And thus, because of Eve's sin, the Lord gave her over to her sin, such that her desire was for her husband in an authority-usurping kind of way. And the Lord was going to give the man over to sinful authoritarian tendencies. And as fallen sons and daughters of that first couple, our sin often manifests itself in the same way. We, too, are punished for our sin in these ways, these ways described here in verse 16. What we need to understand, though, is that when we give way to these sinful tendencies in marriage, we are hurting ourselves. This is true in two ways. In the first way, if I'm domineering toward my wife, this is going to hurt me because it's going to make my life harder in the long run. One way or the other, trace the causes and effects down the line. This is going to be bad for me personally if I'm bad to my wife. This is not going to turn out for my benefit. And in the second way, if I'm being sinful and hurtful to my wife, I am actually being sinful and hurtful to myself because she and I are married. We are one flesh. And as Paul says in Ephesians 5, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. Ephesians 5.29. When someone conducts themselves sinfully and hatefully in marriage, they are sinning against themselves and hating themselves because they are sinning against and hating the one with whom they are one. On the contrary, Paul says, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Ephesians 5.28. So husbands and wives, how's this going? Husbands, are you leading in love? Are you leading in rudeness and anger? Wives, are you being respectful or are you usurping and undermining your husband? And I realize that given the winding paths of sin, which we as fallen people often find ourselves on, this is, again, not an exhaustive list of sins that plague marriages. Sometimes, again, rather than being domineering in their authority, husbands abdicate their authority and the family suffers as a result. The wives who need them to lead and to serve are left unled and unserved. And the children who need godly, the godly of authority of a loving father in their life are left without it, and they have to either fend for themselves or try to find someone or something else to fill the void. Sometimes, instead of explicitly seeking to usurp her husband's authority in the sense of trying to be the boss of a family, sometimes a wife simply checks out. Checks out of the marriage, checks out of the family, or at least attempts to reduce parental status to part-time, to sign off and say, I'm out. There was a a senior editor at uh, the Atlantic magazine named Honor Jones who uh, wrote an article in December of 2021 in which she described her own experience of that very thing, how she just just checked out from her marriage and checked out from her family. It was uh, titled... 
How I Demolished My Life, a home improvement story. And what she called a home improvement story actually made me cry. Now, some things make me cry in a good way. This one was not one of them. This made me cry in a bad way. She, she talked about uh, ripping apart their, their family and taking away uh, the family life of their children, knowing that she had taken from them something that she could never give back to them. Made me cry. And there are other ways that husbands and wives can sin against each other in the context of marriage. There are all kinds of ways. In short, the institution of marriage now suffers because of sin. Sinners now are the only ones who enter into that institution. We're given over to sin as a just punishment for being sinners, and our sin makes our lives hard for us. Isn't that what the proverb says, that the way of the sinner is hard? makes life hard for us, hard for our spouse, hard for our children if we have any. And so, friend, let these difficulties brought to you by sin drive you to repentance. Let it drive you to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. Let it drive you to Christ for grace that you may turn from such evils. Let it drive you to seek forgiveness from and reconciliation with your spouse if there's any rift between the two of you. Again, to borrow the language of the Bohemian Confession, these are brought upon us and are born patiently that we may learn to acknowledge the magnitude of our sin and how grievous a thing it is and also our own weakness and poverty and misery and that we perceive by experience how wicked, foul, and bitter a thing it is above all comprehension that one forsake the Lord is God. Likewise, that those who are drowned in these miseries and have been oppressed with these burdens may be stirred up to repentance and to seek grace and help from God who is a father full of mercy and compassion. And this is where the misery that is brought by sin ought to drive us. It ought not to leave us in despair, but it ought to drive us to the Lord. It ought to drive us to repentance. And when there's trouble or discord in a marriage, the first thing we ought to do is to to look at ourselves. Am I causing the problem? Am I contributing to the problem? And if the answer is yes, then that ought to drive us to Christ, to repentance, and also to seek reconciliation with our spouse. But... If you're in that situation and you're seriously pondering the question and you can honestly say, or to the best of your ability, you say, the problem is not me, it's my spouse. I'm not the one with the problem. If that's you, you could be right. Sometimes the responsibility for discord is split between the parties. Sometimes the responsibility is more one-sided. Obviously, you're not, sinful, you're not sinless, but perhaps you're right. Perhaps your spouse is the sole source or at least the main source of the marital discord. And if that is the case, let me say I'm sorry. That is a a tough place to be. Let me also say don't walk through that alone. Talk to the elders about it. I've said before, and I'll stand by this, that I can't make anyone change. I can't make anyone stop sinning. We as a body of elders can't make anyone change, but we can give biblical counsel and biblical instruction In cases where there's clear and unrepentant sin, in the case of a church member, there is the discipline of the church. We're reminded here that the punishment of sin is more sin. This was the punishment that was given by the Lord to the woman, which then flows on to be the punishment of the man as well. Punishment for sin is that they commit more sins against each other in the context of marriage. May God help us repent and to seek after Christ when 
these things press in on us. And in verses 17 through 19, we come to the punishment of the man, which is our second point for this morning. And the punishment for the man is also a punishment for the woman. So Adam is cursed in that he has to eat bread by the, the sweat of his face. Women also sweat and toil and labor to earn a living, to cook for their families, to homeschool their children, whatever it is. Men and women both labor and toil. And what we see in this is that the Lord first gives the reason for the punishment there in, uh, in verse 17. And the reason for the punishment is that he listened to his wife rather than listening to the Lord. Adam knew the commandment of God. He had heard it firsthand, but he refused to listen to the commandment of God. And instead, he listened to the voice of his wife who enticed him to sin. And the punishment for Adam is that the ground is now cursed because of him. This makes his work more difficult and introduces a certain futility to his labor. As we saw a few weeks ago, Adam was given work to do in the garden prior to sin coming into the world. And work as it is, is good. As it was given, work was not burdensome or toilsome. But now, though the work itself remains good, nevertheless it becomes burdensome, toilsome. There's a, there's a futility to it. Just think, think of Ecclesiastes, how you, you labor and toil and do all this stuff and you can't ever actually achieve the goal. The ground is cursed and produces thorns and thistles. Now the man must toil and work hard in order to eat, in order to survive. In toil he will eat from the ground all the days of his life. By the sweat of his face he will eat bread until he returns to the ground. For he was made of dust, and to dust he would return. Let's notice a few things here in this. For one, we find that in the man's punishment... We find that now death is entering into the world through Adam's sin. And this is in accordance with what we read uh, together from Romans 5.12 and following. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. Adam has become liable to physical death the day that he ate of the fruit. And even though he didn't die physically that day, nevertheless... His sin brought death into the world. He would one day return to the dust from which he was taken. And in time, after living for 930 years, as we find in Genesis 5.5, he did return to the earth from which he was taken. This is where and this is why death entered into the world. It was because of sin. It was through Adam. But the second thing that we should notice here is that even though Adam's sin brought about the entrance of death into the human race, yet contained within the sentences of punishment for both Eve and Adam are words which indicate that death will not come immediately and that the human race would continue on upon the earth. Indeed, that was already expressed in the curse upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15. The very fact that there would be a seed of the woman in existence to crush the head of the serpent indicates that the human race is not going to be blotted out there that day in the Garden of Eden. The human race was going to continue. 
And that implication also comes out in the sentence upon Eve, right? She would bear children. That is, she was not going to die right then and there. The same thing holds true in the punishment pronounced upon Adam. Though it is clear that he would die, that he was now subject to death, nevertheless, it's also clear that he would live. The very fact that he would have to labor in a toilsome fashion in order to eat is indicative of the fact that his earthly life was going to continue. It wasn't going to be cut off right then and there. And so there is punishment of death, but there's also an indication of life. And thirdly, it is also worthy of our notice that the Lord does not explicitly curse Adam and Eve. While he says to the serpent, up in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you, he doesn't say the same thing to Adam and Eve. He announces their respective punishments and that they and their posterity were going to be punished greatly. He pronounces that the ground is cursed because of the man, but to neither of them does the Lord say, cursed are you, in the same way that he pronounced the curse upon the serpent or upon the ground. Nor did the Lord say to them, now you are cursed, in the way that he said to Cain in chapter 4, verse 11. Now they did, as a manner of justice, fall under the curse of the violated law, right? Cursed is everyone who does not do everything which the Lord has commanded. So they did fall, as a manner of justice, under the curse of the violated law. And though they had brought spiritual and physical death to themselves and their descendants, yet in his abundant mercy the Lord prevented the full weight of that curse from coming upon them. And he did this by promising one in whom the curse would be taken away. And the full effects of the curse of sin would be taken away even from them, provided that they believed in the one whom he had promised. Therefore, we find in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The spiritual death which they had brought upon themselves and their posterity would be reversed by the seed of the woman, bringing blessing to all who would repent and believe in him. The physical death which they had brought to themselves and their posterity would be reversed by a bodily resurrection. This is a resurrection unto life for all who believe. And this brings us then to our third point, which is faith in the promise. And I think in in what follows as the chapter rounds out in verses 20 through 24, we do see evidence that Adam and Eve did believe the promise of the Lord's mercy and grace toward them. Starting in verse 20, we are told of the shape that life in this new fallen condition was going to take. First of all, we see in verse 20 how Adam called the woman's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Earlier, up in chapter 2, verse 23, Adam had called her woman because she was taken out of man. But now he calls her Eve, which is derived from the, the word for living. The text is not explicit here, but this seems to indicate Adam's faith in the word which God had just delivered to him, namely the word that Eve would have children, that there would one day be a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He understands now on the basis of God's word that they will live and have offspring despite their sin. He names his wife Eve as the mother of all living. 
And we find in verse 21 that the Lord takes steps, that he steps in and does for Adam and Eve what their own attempt could not do. They had attempted to clothe themselves with fig leaves. That was insufficient. And so now the Lord steps in and makes garments for them out of skins. These skins were evidently the skins of one or more animals. Animals who were evidently slain to provide covering. And again, there's no explicit mention of the the death of an animal here or of any theological importance which this event might have, yet this action of God does follow on the heels of God's promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And knowing now, as we do, the way in which this was accomplished, namely by the death of that seed of the woman, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing, as we do, that the death of Jesus Christ brings the outcome that all who trust in him are clothed in his righteousness and may therefore come into the presence of God. Knowing these things, we can now look back on the historical fact described in verse 21 and perhaps see some theological significance to it, even in just the bare action itself. Just the bare action itself. The Lord was being gracious to sinful mankind by providing them with covering for their nakedness, though they deserve to die. That much is is clear. But given the correspondence between what happened here and the great salvation that is accomplished by Christ, it seems that there may have been some typological significance going on here as well. One minister from olden times described the action of God in this respect by saying he slew certain beasts as types and figures and clothed the man and the woman with the skins of those beasts, that having them always about them, they might better exercise their faith in him who was typified by the beasts, whose skins they wore, and so might have their sins covered and their persons also by his merits and righteousness. And each of them might say, as the prophet afterwards did, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 So one or more beasts were slain because of sin. Now whether this be the first sacrifice and the way in which the Lord first taught humanity about the need for a sacrifice and the solemn truth that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins is not, not entirely clear from the text text doesn't give us a whole lot of details. But despite the lack of details, however you may want to describe it or explain it, there are things that happen here in Genesis 3 that run parallel to our experience in Christ. Another life was taken, and the guilty was allowed to live. And as a result of that death, something was transferred from the one whose life was taken and was given to the guilty party. In this case, it was skins given to cover their nakedness. In our case, it is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us with which we are clothed. Our shame is taken away and now we stand blameless before God. However we may want to describe it or explain it, we cannot deny that there are some noteworthy parallels, to say the least. And in the final three verses of the chapter, verses 22 
through 24, we see that Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. And we see the reason why. The reason comes first in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now as we read that, we must not suppose that the eating the fruit of the tree of life had some kind of magical power to it by which if Adam and Eve had somehow gotten in and taken a bite, they would have escaped the punishment of death that had been pronounced upon them and would have lived forever as sinners in the world. Some are of the opinion that we should understand the Lord's words here as being spoken in a a scoffing and ironic way. In other words, uh, that the Lord is, is not actually saying that they really would live forever if they ate from the tree, but that he's speaking in, in an, with an irony there. In regard to the, the tree of life, we should understand that the tree of life had a, had a sacramental or, or symbolic character to it. One man, I think, described it well by saying that God had attached this meaning to the tree of life. He had ordained that the partaking of the fruit of this particular tree should be followed by endless, deathless life. Now, if Adam were to try and take this fruit now, now that he has sinned, now that he has brought death to himself, to the human race, if Adam were to try to to get in and take the fruit and eat of it now, he would be signifying a reality which was not real, rather signifying something that was false. It would be, in a way, like a, like a non-believer coming to the Lord's table. They would be proclaiming something, namely that they have a saving share in the benefits and body of the body and blood of Jesus, which was shed on the cross, which they do not have if they don't truly believe. That's, that's what we're symbolizing in the Lord's Supper, that we have a saving share, that we savingly partake of the, the benefits of Christ's body and blood. That's what we're proclaiming. But this does not pertain to non-believers because they do not have a saving share in the Lord's body and blood. And even so here, if Adam were to eat of the tree of life, it would be meaningless. His eating of the tree would have symbolized something which was completely contrary to reality. It would have been false to the symbolism of the tree which the Lord had instituted. And so Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, sent out to work the ground. At the east of the Garden of Eden, the Lord stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword there to guard the way back to the tree of life. Adam and Eve could not get back in there even if they wanted to. They were expelled from the garden and cut off from the tree. By all appearance, it seems that they were sent out on the east side because that is the direction in which the guard was placed so that they would not return. And as it is... To this day, this is where we still are, east of Eden, sentenced to death because of sin, cut off from the tree of life. We live in a world that is subject to the punishments, punishment of the woman, the punishment of the man, which we have considered. We are in a world that is subjected to futility, a world in which creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, to borrow the words of Paul in Romans 8, 20 and 822. But thanks be to God, though that through the seed of the woman, this arrangement is only temporary. As our brother Stan indicated, there is a way.
back to the tree of life. And the way back is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, Revelation 2.7, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is to say, those who overcome in Christ have this privilege restored to them. This privilege, which was stripped from Adam when he was expelled from the garden. Those who overcome get to eat from the tree of life. That is to say that those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ and persevere in the grace of God, by the grace of God, until the end, will eat from this tree. This privilege will be granted to them by Jesus. Their eating from that tree then will symbolize reality. Those who overcome will eat of that tree, symbolizing that they have overcome, symbolizing that they will not be hurt by the second death. Indeed, we find those words of Revelation 22, verses 2 and 3, a description of the paradise of God, the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what we read there, as we read earlier. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. What we learn here in these final verses of Genesis 3 is that the fall is real and that sin has brought far-reaching consequences to the human race and to all of creation itself. But the scriptures teach us that the fall is not final, that the barred access to the tree of life is not forever for those who come to Christ and find life in his name. For those who come to him and have the curse of the broken law removed from them by faith in Christ who was accursed for us. This means that we must repent and believe and serve Christ here if we desire to be with him and serve him hereafter. This is the gospel. That Christ has come and given himself for us so that we might be restored to eternal life, so that we might be restored to fellowship with God. And... The right response to this is to repent and believe and also to rejoice and be glad in the Lord who has given to us such a great salvation through his Son. To rejoice that the futility described in verses 16 through 19 is not forever for all who believe in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we groan with creation knowing as we do the punishments that come to us from your hand and we acknowledge that we rightly deserve them. But Lord, we are thankful and give you grateful and joyous praise that this curse is not forever. There's coming a day in the new heavens and the new earth when there will be no more curse, when we will be with you face to face and we will have access to the tree of life from which Adam and Eve were barred. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would help us, that we would love you, that we would serve you, that we would cling to Christ. We praise you for the great salvation which is ours through him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.